Vanessa Erochi is the CEO of McCarthy Uniforms, a company that employs over 300 people with another 200 seasonal youth staff working out of 12 locations in southern Ontario. The 65-year-old company had become insolvent a decade after the founders sold it off, so they bought it back. A lot of work was needed to restore McCarthy Uniforms to its former glory, and that's where Vanessa came in. There had kind of been a passion about uh, the business that had been lost. So, you know, one of the first things I did was really realize that I needed to rebuild trust with the team, but I also really needed to get them very excited about what they were doing again, because I could see in their body language and their face, like they weren't excited about waking up to get, get to work every day. And I think unless you have a team that's really motivated, doesn't matter how great your strategy is or how wonderful your goals are, or how great your customer contracts are, it just doesn't all come to life. The first two years of the turnaround went well, and then COVID hit, shutting down their core market. Vanessa says the company has survived COVID because of its purposeful view. If our purpose is to create communities and bring them together, what are the things that the communities we serve need right now? And that sort of led us into a pivot of doing PPE and some very... Um, fun spirit wear initiatives. And so um, we, we made it through COVID with flying colors. And I think COVID actually really made us stronger because in times of stress, you really have to come together, you know, face a challenge together and, and with a lot of focus. On this episode of Run It Like a Girl, Vanessa talks to us about resilience and the added challenges of having no real job description and needing to define her own role as she went. And, and certainly in this company, there had not been a female CEO before and a lot of the senior decision makers for a very long time in our customer base were men. So it, it felt like a little bit of a shakeup at first, but ultimately I think... It, it was an advantage in that a lot of our employees are women and the majority of our customers, you know, at the cash register, you know, the moms buying the uniform, they're also women. So I think that diversity of perspective brought something new to the table and really helped inform the turnaround. And Vanessa points out a potential positive of COVID for the working conditions of women. The CEO of McCarthy Uniforms, Vanessa Arucci, on this episode of Run It Like a Girl. Today is a super exciting day because I'm sitting down and I'm having the opportunity to talk with Vanessa Irochi, who is the president and CEO of McCarthy Uniforms. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us for an episode today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be talking with you, and I think, uh, you know, the work you've done and the various aspects of your career are really interesting, and I'm sure that our audience is going to feel the same way. So why don't we start with, tell us a bit about your background and how you ended up being a CEO. Sure. Uh, it's a little bit of a, you know, like most CEOs, I think not a straight line. And I think, I actually think there's a study that shows most CEOs have very jumble, jungle gym-like career patterns. So I actually started off my career at PwC and I spent over 10 years there, largely in the mergers and acquisitions team, which I really loved. Um, but at some point I decided to make a leap into banking and uh, was an executive at TD for 
almost five years uh, where I did a whole bunch of different functions and where I sort of transitioned from being, you know, a consultant like thought leader into more of a people leader. And I learned my uh, people management skills there for sure. So very grateful for TD for that experience. And I, I think I always had this burning desire to do something entrepreneurial. So uh, it just so happened, one of my former clients from PwC, McCarthy Uniforms, I had helped the family sell their business in 2008. And unfortunately, uh, 10 years later, uh, the business had become insolvent. So they actually approached me to help them buy the business back, but they also wanted an operator for the business because they um, felt it really needed to sort of, you know, go into sort of the 21st century in terms of digital transformation and such. So I kind of joined forces with them and um, we have had a really, really exciting four years doing a turnaround. That's amazing. That's really interesting to me. And I love how you talk about uh, making the switch to being a people leader um, and sidebar, which is, I just think is kind of, uh, neat is that I I work at PwC. And you we we kind of cross paths on paths. Yeah, almost. Um, almost. And my husband right? works at TD, so oh, <laughs> maybe you've you seen go. both of us. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but um, when you talk about your people leadership skills, going into an organization that is actually in that kind of position, how mm-hmm. like how would you describe your leadership style? But what was needed to try to, from a leadership perspective, start turning that organization around while taking care of the people that worked there? Yeah, really good question. Um, I would say that, you know, at McCarthy's, the company has, it's actually 65 years old this year, really great Canadian heritage brand. And it had just lost its path. And I think it all boils down to um, really understanding very deeply what your brand values are and invigorating and empowering your team to really bring those brand values to life. There had kind of been a passion about uh, the business that had been lost. So, you know, one of the first things I did was really realize that I needed to rebuild trust with the team, but I also really needed to get them very excited about what they were doing again, because I could see in their body language and their face, like they weren't excited about waking up to get, get to work every day. And I think unless you have a team that's really motivated, doesn't matter how great your strategy is or how wonderful your goals are, or how great your customer contracts are, it just doesn't all come to life unless you have that kind of motivation. And actually, I remember one of the first things I did, it was so silly, but it really worked, is I made this ridiculous sign on a cardboard box that said, we love uniforms, that's our business uniforms. And I took a picture of everyone on our team holding this we love uniforms sign, and I posted it on Instagram, I made posters about it, and. You know, I just got everyone excited again about uh, what it is that we're doing. That's great. And it's it's so true, right? Like, I mean, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If, if you're not passionate about it, if you're not excited about going to, to work every day, it's, uh, it's really hard to drive a common vision or a common goal if the people... Oh, absolutely. And you don't have to be at the Google headquarters. You know, when I think about what we do, I'll be really honest, uniforms can kind of sound a little bit boring. It's very old economy. But when you think about why is it that a school or workplace has a uniform, it's really to create the sense of community and shared identity. And like, how exciting is that to think about your purpose as doing something that brings people together? And it was a really small reframe, but um, I think it helped kind of 
ignite something in the people that hadn't been there for a while. So that was that was really rewarding to see that transformation. I love that. And and how are you doing now? Great. Well, I mean, we've, <laughs> uh, the universe really wants me to work really hard in life, I think, because uh, certainly the first two years went really well. It was a turnaround. So, you know, a turnaround means things happen, you know, slowly over time as you rebuild. And we made some amazing progress, won back a lot of marquee customers, rebranded, did a complete digital transformation. And we even launched a new segment for workplace uniforms, which was the new part of the business. And then COVID comes along and it's like, oh, just as we sort of revive this thing, we're getting this sort of punch in the nose um, with a pandemic that essentially shut our core market down uh, for the balance of the year. And I would say pivoting back to my conversation about purpose, I would say having that purposeful view is what helped us survive COVID. Because what we really did, our purpose is to create communities and bring them together. What are the things that the communities we serve need right now? And that sort of led us into a pivot of doing PPE and some very um, fun spirit wear initiatives. And so um, we, we made it through COVID with flying colors. And I think COVID actually really made us stronger because in times of stress, you really have to come together you know, face a challenge together and, and with a lot of focus. Yeah, I imagine. I, I, I can't believe uh, what so many organizations have gone through over the last year. And resilience is really um, so important. And I'm going to ask you, it's, it's, you know, I'm going off script, but what does resilience mean to you as someone that's come through this? Yeah, that no one's ever asked me that. You know, certainly there's the textbook definition, but I think um, like as a human, resilience really means you know, moving forward and dealing with a challenge that that is at hand and being really committed to actually getting through it and coming out better versus, you know, it would have been really easy for me to say, you know, hey, it's totally not fair. We just fixed this business. Now we're getting this kick in the shins. Um, you, you know, there wasn't any time for that. So I think resilience was, hey, we have a really great infrastructure and base here. What can we do to get through this mess and come out even better? And I think that's resilience. That's great. That's a fantastic answer. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I want to shift a little bit, um, which actually I think probably ties into resilience anyway. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's not a large number of female CEOs in Canada, um, even today. Uh, how do you think that has played into your career and establishing credibility as a CEO? So I get asked this a lot. And what's interesting is I had a really hard time, probably even for the first year of my role, even describing myself as the CEO or president. I, I'd often say, well, I run a uniform company. I lead a uniform company. And uh, I think there is that imposter syndrome that you feel. But, um, you know, and, there, and there's certainly not a lot of female role models. So... I have a really authentic kind of folksy style. That's my personality. And that, you know, isn't what one expects when they see a CEO. One expects someone a little bit more austere and serious. So I, I feel that being a female, I really had to 
um, double down on having confidence in my abilities because I didn't have this mold that I understood that was clear. I kind of had to define it as as I went. And, and certainly in this company, there had not been a female CEO before. And a lot of the senior decision makers for a very long time in our customer base were men. So it, it felt like a little bit of a shakeup at first. But ultimately, I think it, it was an advantage in that a lot of our employees are women. And the majority of our customers, you know, at the cash register, the end customers, not the school boards that hire us, but, you know, the moms buying the uniform, they're also women. So I think that diversity of perspective brought something new to the table and really helped inform the turnaround. I bet it did. I think that's such an interesting way to look at it in terms of like who your customers are, who the, the employees are, and uh, and the difference that it probably made to have a, a woman leading a re- during a turnaround and that different kind of perspective. So I think yeah. that's pretty cool. And I think it's true for any type of diversity of perspective. I think, you know, there are just things you see as a female or a male that are unique. And so I think that's why it's so important to ha- always have a mix of perspectives at the table. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. Um, so you also participate in a number of organizations that focus on the advancement of women and girls. Would you mind, ta- talk to us a little bit about about that and why it's so important to you? Sure. And, you know, I think why it's so important, I'll start. I'll start with that question because it really links to what I mentioned before about there are not a lot of female role models in the most senior of roles. And there, up until very recently, you know, women were not the typical entrepreneur. And I feel like I was probably born to do something entrepreneurial. I didn't even think about becoming an entrepreneur until 15 years into my career. It didn't even register as an option for me. So I feel really passionate that, you know, not every woman might want to be a CEO or an entrepreneur. But hopefully, at least they'll know it's an option. So I felt like my pay it forward was um, really taking my experience and helping women who are specifically interested in business, like understand the the possibilities, but also the opportunities for innovation that that gender provides. And uh, I had the great uh, timing luck. Uh, intersecting paths with Sarah Kaplan at the University of Toronto while I was on a sabbatical from TD and I had met Sarah in in some of the work I had been been doing at TD relating to women and investing and she said you know I've been thinking of starting this research institute for women in business do you think you could help and I was like oh my gosh totally count me in and so I worked with her uh, the first summer it was just the two of us Obviously, this is Sarah's vision around having like rigorous research being conducted about um, women and gender and the economy. And so I feel really lucky that I've contributed in my small way to that organization. Um, I developed a course called Designing for Quality that I taught at Rotman. And that course is all about flipping the conversation on its head and, and really looking at things you know, these messy problems that exist with gender, you know, like women, not enough women in STEM, and then just asking, well, what opportunity can that provide from a business perspective? And, you know, I'll use that example. There 
there's a great group of women that invented a toy company called Goldie Blocks, which is Lego for little girls that is aligned to storytelling and character development. And because one of the key pieces is coming out of research is that, you know, in order to close the gap in STEM, you have to go way back and start when, when women are getting interested in math and science. And, you know, boys are given all these trucks and Legos and girls are told to play with dolls. And so those women saw that as a problem, but also as an opportunity for a great business. And there's so many examples like this. That's really awesome. And um, so I want to ask you a follow-up question. But first, if anyone's yeah. interested, Sarah was actually a guest on season two. So you can learn more about Sarah and the Institute for Gender and the Economy if you want to check that episode out, because Sarah is a pretty remarkable woman. Oh, hugely <laughs> remarkable. Oh, my gosh. Incredible. Uh, Absolutely. And the follow-up question I want to ask you, so when you're teaching a course or when you're talking to different women about, you know, whatever it might be around the advancement of women, what are usually the main blockers or main things in people's heads, do you think, that are preventing, um, you know, someone from actually fulfilling their their own goal or yeah, objective? So, so the reality is that the, um, you know, the issue of, you know, women moving forward during childbearing years that is a question I still get so often. You know, how did you do it when you're expecting? I'm, I'm a mom to a 13 year old, but I get the question a lot. Even actually, someone asked me today, How were you running a business during COVID when you had a 13 year old? And um, I'm not going to lie, it's for sure a challenge. And I think that it's a challenge, but we have to start having really honest conversations about the fact it's a challenge. And um, I think that remains a barrier. I actually think even though COVID was a stressor on women, I think one positive that's going to emerge from COVID is that remote work and flexible work has become suddenly much more acceptable. And I think in the long term, that's going to be great for women in that phase of life where they're, you know, really juggling the sort of toddler baby life. I think that's definitely a barrier. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the issue of a lack of role models is, is also a barrier because we can pick out all kinds of industries that have, uh, you know, a gap in terms of women as senior leaders. And it's really hard to solve that gap in a year. So we had this issue all the time, like in the investment bank. Uh, you know, there are not enough women investment banking directors. And the reality is you can't solve that problem in a year. You have to go and look at your associate pool and say, how are we going to groom and support this associate pool? So then in five to six years, we have a slate of really great women candidates for these roles. And, and I think sometimes we expect too much of a quick fix. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, something that's just ingrained in society, there is no quick fix for that, right? And I remember asking, right. what are the three key things you need to do to change how, uh, how women <laughs> are perceived? There are no three quick things. Totally. This is like a 10-year, you know, if you're, if you're looking at gaps in professions, you're looking at a 10-year implementation for your solution, in my view. Otherwise, you end up with these issues of, um, you know, promoting women before they're ready, or maybe the issue of sometimes creating token roles, which... Um, is not positive for the advancement of women. 
Absolutely. And just another little observation uh, that someone, it wasn't my observation, but I think it's so interesting. You know, I get asked too, I have kids. How do you, how do you work? How do you manage that with kids? And, and someone said it to me, you know, I get asked that every day. And I wonder how many times my husband gets asked that question. Exactly. <laughs> so, so true. I, you know, it's funny how many people ask me that um, actually on the job, like customers, you know, I'm in the middle of maybe pitching a customer or negotiating and and often someone will just say out of the blue and and what is marco doing like what is like what does he do when you're not around and and things like that and it's it, it's such a judgmental question it is it is it's so interesting and yeah. so funny and actually if i'm being honest i think my husband probably pulls more of the weight around here than i do during the work day cuz uh, i have an office <laughs> and i close the door and he chose to put his office in the living room so <laughs> supportive husband for sure he's absolutely you know a thousand percent a partner and more and I would say I often tell women make sure you pick the right partner you know because if I was married to someone that needed to like watch the hockey game all night for four hours you know my life would probably not have unfolded as it has for sure that's so true and then of course there's uh, all people that they don't have anyone else and it's just them and that's where the real you know challenges are and and dis um... hundred percent for sure. Yes, for sure. Yeah, I feel like I have this whole um, support system in place. I mean, I have a really supportive husband. Um, I have two really healthy parents that live down the road that are retired that have only one grandchild. So, uh, you know, they're they're the sort of um, plunge protection team when we have an emergency. <laughs> and so I, I feel lucky that it. I'm in a position of privilege and that I have so much support. So yeah. that's a, that's a really good call out because if you don't have a support system, this is really, really tough. It is. It is. And, and, and that's yeah. not obviously to diminish. I'm sure, sure it is very tough on everyone across the board. I think the entire world is feeling it, um, which is yeah. so unique too, eh? That it's a common experience <laughs> yeah. that everyone is going through anyway. That's a whole other conversation. But um, so this next question is a question that I ask uh, every single guest and I love it. And I think I say this every time too, but that's okay. <laughs> I love it because it's, everyone has different answers, but sometimes there's similar themes. And that question really is, if you could go back to when you first started your career and have a conversation with yourself what type of advice would you give um such a good question I would say um you know it's it's I it's always a toss-up when people ask me this um because I would say the biggest advice I would have given myself is around the importance of relationships and building really strong relationships and how those are a business asset sometimes more so than anything else, more than what you know, and more than your work product. And, you know, if I look back to my early days at PDBC, I would say, you know, when I was writing my CA exams, and I look at that cohort, those, those folks like are in the C level all across Bay Street right now. And I've done a decent job staying in touch with, you know, some of them, but I would say I, I could have done a better job for sure. So there's the relationship for sure. And, and then I think there's this sort of, you know, drown out the noise. And if you want something, go for it. Because it probably took me 10 years or so to realize that if I want something, I have to ask for it. I can't just wait around for the benevolence of my bosses or the people that influence my career. You, you do need sharp elbows at a certain level to move forward. 
I think that's a great point because I do think, and I think it's more women than men uh, traditionally yeah. just think if I do a good job and keep my head down and just work yeah. really, really hard, I'm going to get that promotion or I'm going to get Not that at all. We'll just keep you working in that role forever. That That's actually what will happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's fantastic advice. And that actually brings us to the end of the formal questions of the podcast. And then we have our fast three. So I'll just ask you three questions and get your thoughts on them. And the first one is, what is your favorite podcast or source of information? Ooh. Um, well, I think I'm going to love this podcast, given the topic. But I listen to Stanford eCorner. And that is often uh, startups, entrepreneurs, talking about their experiences, talking about the world of innovation. Um, I've just learned a ton from that podcast. Oh, that's amazing. I'm going to check that one out. I wrote it down. Um, and what are you currently reading? I am reading, well, I just got it. I just got the Heart of Business, which was actually the story of the turnaround of Best Buy. And that was a people-led turnaround as well. So that's kind of interesting because I just realized as I'm holding this book up that it, it links into my own story. And believe it or not, I don't think I'd make that, made that connection. Oh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> I love <Yeah>. it. <laughs> and the last question is, who is currently inspiring you? Who's currently inspiring me? Ooh, um, so many people these days. And I'm really embarrassed that I don't know her name. I should. The CEO of Bumble. I just think it's such a great story because she worked at Tinder was mistreated and she's kind of said, screw this, I'm going to go start my own amazing dating co company where women get to make all the decisions. And then she had this like kick-ass IPO two weeks ago. And I just think it's such a great story. And it was billions. She's the youngest billionaire now, isn't she? The youngest female yes. billionaire or something. And uh, I, I had to look her up. I couldn't remember her name either, but it's Whitney Wolf. Yes, Whitney Wolf. I apologize. It completely escaped me. But there have been a few stories like this in the news lately. And so, you know, that's one I mentioned, uh, Joanna Griffiths, who's the CEO of um, Nixware. She's another. And so many great stories of women just saying, you know what? I don't care if the status quo has a problem with my gender or my current, you know, state of motherhood. I'm just going to go for it anyways. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. Well, Vanessa, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy day to sit down and have a conversation with me. I think it's been absolutely fantastic. So thank you again for being a guest. Yeah, thanks for having me. Run It Like a Girl is hosted by Bonnie Moak. Brian Long is the producer. Web design and technical assistance provided by Dan Moak. And music courtesy of the talented Brooklyn Gillichuk.